Right, so we're going, we're going to start now. Um, well, a very warm welcome. It's, it's nice to see um, such, such a good turnout. And uh, we're here um, for a number of reasons, but partly as a book launch and partly as a lecture. So I'll say something first of all about the book, uh, which I've been reading this week on the tube, and it's greatly cheered up, I think, my, my tube journeys to be able to read about Ignacy Paderewski um, by Anita Przemowska and Poland. Now this is part of a series, quite an ambitious series, launched by House Publishing, who are represented here tonight. Hank, hello. Yeah. Um, and House Publishing, this is, it's the, the Peace Conferences of 1919-23 and their aftermath, Makers of the Modern World. And it's a very interesting and unusual attempt to focus on a key period, really, in the development of 20th century international history, looking at the peace settlement at the end of the First World War, by a series of books on each of the major participants at the peace conference, both the politicians and the countries that they represented. And there are over 30 volumes. Are they all out now, um, Barbara? Um, we are How's the progress? Uh, just about to, to uh, launch Yes. Well, okay, well, I can commend them to you. As you see, they're very <coughs> nicely produced, and they're also remarkably um, modestly priced, actually, for a hardback. At uh, $12.99 for a hardback these, these days, it's, it's extremely high value. Um, the other thing to say, I guess, is well, Poland mu must, of course, figure there. It must. It's one of the most important consequences of the peace settlement at the end of the First World War, that the recreation of the Polish state after more than a century of oblivion, and is one of the most controversial aspects of the peace settlement at the time and for 20 years subsequently. And of course the nature of that settlement between Germany and Poland becomes the trigger when the next major war breaks out in 1939. So it should be there. And the men who made the Polish settlement, there were three of them who particularly represented Poland at the peace conference, as Paderewski, Domowski and, well, in the background of Poland itself, and Pilsudski, these, these three characters form a major part of the book um, that Anita's written. Paderewski himself, very interesting character, as, a as an early case, I think, of a celebrity in politics. A man who'd made his reputation as a fantastically successful concert pianist um, in Europe and in the United States. Um, it goes back to that, actually, in the 1920s and 1930s. But in the interim, in 1919 to 20, he's Prime Minister of Poland, speaks for his country at the Paris Peace Conference, gets deeply involved in national and international politics, and finds it a rather bruising experience, plays a very memorable part in it. So this is then an early example of celebrity politics, a sort of Arnold Schwarzenegger, I guess, of, of the period, um, though I, I hesitate to push that comparison any further. Um, anyway, it's, it's very good that we've got a need to talk about this, and uh, the, end of the, the Polish question at the end of the First World War, because she is one of the leading experts in this country and internationally on the history of Poland and Eastern Europe in the 20th century. And she can bring a kind of long-term perspective to this because, first of all, her own background, as you'll know if you've looked at the um, blurb of the department's website, um, she was actually, her father fought for the Polish cause in the Second World War, based in Britain, um, as background as an aviator. Um, she was brought up in Poland and then educated, completed her education in the UK. 
um, and has taught at Strathclyde and Queen Mary before yeah. coming here, isn't that right? Yes. Um, started off by writing about Poland and Britain during the Second World War, a very sort of fraught and controversial relationship, and has broadened as she's gone on, looking at the communist power, establishment of communist domination in Poland and Polish history in general. Um, so that she's come with that kind of long-term perspective, come back now to look at the founding, re-emergence of the Polish state during and after World War I, and that's what she's going to be talking to, to us about tonight. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Anita to give the lecture. Thank you. Well, I, I, the difficulty about uh, public lectures is that you try to span a variety of uh, the, the sort of extent of knowledge people have. But I hope to be able to offer to those who know something about Poland um, some, at least, um, a few ref points of reflection and those who haven't a detailed knowledge to at least introduce some ideas. Now, we all know that the First World War, when it came to an end, that new states appeared, that, that we sort of this is the standard interpretation we have. Poland, and of course, then also Czechoslovakia, the three Baltic states, and Yugoslavia. But the restoration of Poland was an issue which had been extensively discussed um, before the First World War. It was a very emotive issue. It tended <coughs> to be seen as a touchstone of European morality whether Poland will be restored or not. It became a very uh, 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 um, commitment to which many very diverse organizations felt they had to make. Uh, for example, the Second International. Um, Marx himself considered that this was uh, injustice. British Chartists, in the, though of course would be entirely addressing the issue of electoral reform in Britain, did make uh, some pronouncements on the injustice of the partition of Poland. So the, it's generally it was perceived that it was an injustice and this would be in due course reversed. Um, now Poland lost its, or the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth ceased by the third partition in 1795. Um, uh, from that point onward, of course, Poland is merely a subject of debate. It's not a reality. <coughs> see how by these three processes of partition Poland effectively is divided between the three empires, which is Austria, Russian, and Prussian <coughs> Empire, and during the process of German unification, of course, then the Polish territories become part of the German Empire. So this is, this is the map we see how Poland effectively is dismembered. Um, needless to say, Poles did not accept this situation. The feeling was that um, what had happened during the partition had to be reversed. And what we see is Poles in these three partition areas attempting to stage uprising and also seeking international support for the restoration or for the aspirations for independence. Now, the result of that one is that we know that they, it becomes known as the Polish question issue of what happens. Um, now, uh, when we look at it, when we go forward, um, we can see that European governments very frequently made statements that Poland should be restored. But in reality, of course, as long as Austrian, 
German and German and, uh, and, and Austrian, German and Russian empires existed and were strong, no one would challenge them because the challenge to the, uh, to, to the control of this region would effectively meant a challenge to the balance of power. So on various occasions, be it uh, Britain or France, made statements which appeared to be uh, sympathetic towards the idea of restoration of Poland. In reality, in deep down, they did absolutely nothing because this was really not uh, something that they would challenge the three empires over that one. Now, nevertheless, when the war breaks out, it's it's entirely different situation prevails because what happened is that the three empires that controlled Poland now are pitched against each other. And that means it was inevitable that from this uh, uh, conflict, the Poles were bound to benefit in some way. Just exactly what they were going to obtain, what they were going to manage to wrestle out of the collapse of the European consensus was not clear during the war, but nevertheless, hopes were very much there. Um, now, I'm not suggesting that, that during the war the matter of the restoration of Poland was a prejudged case. It was very far from this being like that. But what it nevertheless did, the outbreak of the war, is offered an opportunity to, as it, go back to the discussion on Poland. Um, now, <laughs> this leads me to, to, to stop. And just, there are moments when you think, how do wars end? Is it just an armistice and everybody's happy? You know, everybody knows that. Just this mechanics of the end of the war. In the case of Poland, it's very important to understand exactly how the war ends and how the situation develops. Now, how is it um, that people know and how do they react to the collapse of either occupation policies, powers that control territories, or wartime controls? How do they know that this is stopped? Also, um, uh, just exactly how is the situation stabilized as you know the regime that was in control up to a given moment suddenly <coughs> no longer as powerful or is has got other concern now in Poland's case um, the lines of inquiry that I propose to put forward are following um, how much was the restoration of an independent state a matter of concern to Poles as a whole as opposed to merely the elites, the political elites that had been active previously in planning for the restoration of Poland. In other words, is it a groundswell, or is there just an elite-driven, or perhaps just narrow circles of the community? Also, what did they hope to gain? Was it going to be autonomy within given empires, some sort of degree of larger degree of uh, independence? In what form was Poland to be restored or re-emerge? Monarchy, perhaps? Republic, but just exactly what type of republic, what type of franchise, what type of political participation. Were these questions asked before actually the opportunity for the restoration of Poland emerges? Who decided Poland's borders? That's also, we, again, we have a sort of automatic vision. These issues are decided in Paris. They were not decided in Paris. So who decided? And finally, what role do the European powers play? in that process of actually putting onto the map a state that had not been there for approximately 100, 100 years. In other words, the restoration of Poland must have required some deep thinking, or at least for the European powers, an assessment of what is an advantageous balance of power for them. So it's from the personal perspective. Starting off with the question, okay, Poland, what comes after the republics of the nobility? 
also. We have two major uprisings in Poland in November 19, uh, 1830 and January 1863. But in addition to that, there were various other opportunities as well as minor <laughs> uprisings, which I don't want to rehearse. But what we had is a process of soul searching, a process after each failure of trying to assess um, what had gone wrong. Why was uh, independence not secure as a result of this uprising? But also very important, a uh, question that comes up is who led the uprising? Who exactly assumed the role of the leader of the nation? And it is the failure of the uprisings as well as uh, uprisings, these particular ones, are planned nearly, nearly entirely by the nobility. And also the savagery of retribution led to a point of reflection. Is this something that um, maybe there should be a larger degree of responsibility before you uh, plan an uprising and should perhaps consider what might happen. So from these great debates which are conducted um, uh, throughout the 19th century, certain, um, uh, 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 as if conclusions emerge even before the war. So as the war starts, and as I mentioned, the opportunity for perhaps making uh, resting some concessions uh, offers itself, the debates had already been rehearsed. They are as if uh, part of an ongoing trauma in Poland, as well as coming to terms with what had happened earlier. Um, now, the interesting point about the partitions is that the concept of modernization was associated in Poland with foreign tutelage, because it is under foreign control that Poland experiences the first major process of modernization. Um, there is a certain mind frame, therefore, that modernization is foreign-led. It is not a Polish issue. Um, nevertheless, by the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, the nobility is sidelined. The nobility is no longer perceived to be the soul of the nation. In fact, we can see the debate extending to Effectively, you know, the, the issue of independence is one that concerns wider sections of the Polish ethnic community. Um, and of course, the economic development of Polish territories very much contributed to that one, creating as if a different uh, social strata, as well as um, raising problems which were discussed more widely rather than purely in terms of the, the from the perspective of nobility. Um, now, before the outbreak of the war, the issue of Poland's restoration therefore moves on from being that point of restoration of Poland to also discussion on modernity, the question of ethnicity, the question of social revolution, and of course state building. So all these debates are somewhere there discussed, even if not conclusively, because a dominant element in all of these issues is nationalism. It is the fate of the Polish nation. So though these discussions are conducted, they are dominated and led still, one could say overshadowed very often by this issue of, you know, in the end we need the restoration of Poland. Now before the war, three political trends developed. We have to remember that in all of these partition areas, um, uh, there is, uh, you know, Poles el elected representatives to the Vienna, Berlin, 
um, and also St. <coughs> Petersburg Parliament after 1906. So political parties are already there even before the independent Poland is there. So Polish deputies are of course participating in the political life of the three empires. So the three strands of political development is the National Democrats, Socialists and the Peasant Party. And all three had to consider the question, the primacy of the issue of, of restoration of Poland in comparison with other objectives that naturally political parties would be discussing. Even the Polish Socialist Party is deeply divided over the question of whether uh, independence should come first and the Socialist Revolution second with this being actually an issue that divides Polish socialists very seriously. Um, monarchy was no, a monarchy was not considered anymore. In any way, in Poland, the concept of a monarchy is, is uh, even before the partition, there is no concept of a hereditary monarchy. We have an elected monarchy. Therefore, really, what the, the discussion within these parties focuses upon is a form of electoral representation, just exactly who is going to have the right to vote, who represents Poland, and what type of institutions are going to take place. Um, now, the interesting thing is that the National Democrats and the peasant parties, which emerged in all of these three partition areas, saw the common man as the true pole. There's a very big stress on the fact that electorate, the electorate should be, um, should be those who create wealth, those who work. A very interesting period of development of Polish Peasant Party movement, where the Peasant Party leaders actually emphatically speak about equality in terms of not inherited wealth, not inherited privilege, but in terms of wealth production. So it's this sort of organic relationship with Polish land. But that, what differentiates them from the National uh, Democrats, who emphatically stress the ethnic issue, in other words, that the priority should be that of Polish ethnic, in other words, Polish national interest as opposed to the electorate, is that the Peasant Party actually uh, develops a program which is wider than merely that of independence, discussing economic reforms, discussing educational reforms for the future, at least hoping to do so. Whereas the Socialist Party remained, uh, discussed all these issues, but it remained very deeply divided, as I already mentioned in, uh, earlier to you. Um, the plans for future, uh, the future of Poland did not actually include a, a, a conclusive discussion on the subject of borders. No one was entirely clear what Poland's future borders should be like. In other words, should it be the restoration of this wide, you know, the Commonwealth borders? But if Poland was to be restored in its pre-partition borders, it effectively would mean that the rights of non-Polish, non-ethnically Polish people were in fact challenged. And this something that we, we see that there is a lack of any dialogue between the Polish community leaders, political leaders, and for example, Belarusian or Ukrainian leaders, who by that time are emerging and formulating first ideas of their own cultural identity, linguistic identity, and also hope of statehood. And the Poles, on the whole, irrespective of which party they belong to, tended to, in fact, play down the aspirations. So this idea is still very much that the Commonwealth, not an ethnically united Poland, but perhaps we will return to that 
Commonwealth. Let me now move to the subject of this lecture because you sort of most probably feel it's like a odeur and you are waiting for the main course. I'm finding this get down to just exactly how Poland emerges. How did state authority emerge within territories that had previously been under German occupation? Now, was this, as I said, the result of the groundswell, people surging onto the street, going out there and taking over what they considered to be key institutions? Do we see that spontaneity? Or do we have a conspiracy that prepared itself? Everything I've said to you up to now suggests that there is a process of planning, preparation, anticipation. So is it a conspiracy, a leadership group, already focused, already in place, already ready to hit the ground running? Are these the people who therefore say, we represent the interests, give us the authority? Or perhaps they are bureaucrats, state employee politicians who had already been part of the occupation force, or perhaps politicians who had already been within the elected assemblies of the three empires and had a degree of authority as well as a sort of self-appointed role. So what is it? Now, in Poland's case, we see all three, which is why the book that <laughs> we've just published suggests that Paris you know, is the main subject. But in reality, there is a book that I spend my time saying that what is decided at the Paris peace talks is perhaps no more than the validation of what is decided by the Poles themselves. It's a completely different situation from what we normally assume. In other words, the big powers do not decide. So any de presentation of the Polish case by saying that the existence of Poland is decided, or the existence of Poland is uh, in some way made possible due to discussion of Paris, is not correct. I'm not suggesting that what happens uh, at the big uh, Paris meeting is irrelevant. What I'm suggesting is that the starting point of one's understanding of how Poland emerges from this situation into independence is actually understanding what happens in Poland and only then taking that to see how that the decisions made in the Polish territories then uh, as you find validation in what happens actually within the forum of the big discussions. Now, the important ingredient in the story, that moment when Poland can, as if Poles can do what they wanted to do, which is to create their own independent state, is the defeat of Germany. And, of course, Germany and Austria were physically in control of Polish territories. As Germany was defeated, and, and uh, there is a decision made by the German authorities to withdraw from Warsaw, from Poland, it is a man that, that uh, uh, is seen as the key man in Poland. He's, he looks exactly how his, uh, you know, the fame made him. He's both his demeanor, this, you know. This is Piłsudski. The Piłsudski that is seen very much as the father of the Polish statehood. And of course, all his actions were intended to consolidate Poland's authority. So Piłsudski was already known to many Poles. Um, at that moment, when German authority withdraws, he is the head of, uh, he's uh, uh, effectively given authority by the Germans to create, to assume authority. He assumes the title of head of state um, and commander in chief of what he's going to now form the Polish army. Though similar, uh, not similar, but um, certain authorities emerged in Krakow and in Lublin, in other words, self-appointed politicians seeking to stabilize the situation as the Austrian and German troops who were drawing, tried to establish governments. 
But what happened is that these men more than gladly bowed to the fact that they in Warsaw, Piłsudski, a man whose legend already preceded him, assumed that role. In other words, there's no challenge either on the part of the socialists or the National Democrats at this minute to Piłsudski assuming authority. That made it easier because that meant that the very starting point of the building of the organizational structure and what is of course very important here of the building of the military units which are going to complete the task is done without difficulty. So Piłsudski is able, therefore, to step into that role. And the people in the street, people who had previously been em in employment, you know, at state employment, there was no opposition to that one. So there is indeed that groundswell. But that elite exists there too, an elite that had already well rehearsed this moment as well as was known to people. So Piłsudski doesn't come out of conspiracy. Piłsudski is a known man. Um, now what is important in, in the next stage is that Poland is able to establish itself militarily because the, the, the definition of Poland's boundaries is going to depend upon Poland being able to prevent the emergence of any form of vacuum, in particular in the East, and Piłsudski is well placed to do so. So Poland's frontiers and Poland's existence is not decided at the Paris peace talks. Poland is already as if a reality, and the Polish delegation goes to Poland, to Paris, very confident, determined to seek validation. <coughs> what they want is approval for the fact that they are already there. Um, now, with the, one of the things, one of the issues that made um, uh, uh, Piłsudski's life e easy was the fact that the Germans and the Austrians, in fact, didn't play their hand very well while they were in occupation of Poland. And they, went, they created the Kingdom of Poland from occupied territories, but they didn't want to create a Polish authority. They had their own plans, in particular the German authorities had their own plans concerning occupied Poland. Um, while these plans were developed, they created a sort of quasi-Polish authority. It was called the, the, the Provisional Council of State of the Kingdom of Poland and the Regency Council. There was some talk of a monarchy. But they didn't give them authority. The real authority rested with Piłsudski because he had, in fact, been allowed <laughs> to form Polish units. And therefore, he was the commander of Polish units, which were going to fight with Germany during the course of the war, since no one knew who was going to win the war, that was not entirely illogical. And therefore he has the loyalty of Polish soldiers who hoped that this would be in some way a negotiating ploy. So that meant that Piłsudski, in fact, doesn't have a challenge in Warsaw or within the Polish community to his own role. Piłsudski also, his, his, you know, this, this, this um, beautiful propaganda imagery of him is enhanced by the fact that he was imprisoned. Um, there was a conflict between Piłsudski and the German authorities over the use of Polish troops, and Piłsudski <coughs> refused to release uh, these troops for use unless they had been trained, and there was also a quarrel about the oath of loyalty. Piłsudski is incarcerated, and he acquires furthermore a status of a martyr. So he's, when he's released by the Germans before uh, 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 they withdraw, this man is as if not just very well placed to establish his authority, but there is an order, an order of a man who, who, who represents everything Poland wants. 
which is the fight for independence, <coughs> Polish dignity, Polish aspirations. So this man is coming in as a winner, and he, of course, succeeds at that one. His authority as he uh, came to Warsaw was immense, as I've already mentioned that one, no challenge. Now, this consensus he uses for two purposes. One, to secure the new state's frontiers. It's very quick to appreciate that one. But also, to overrule the authority of an organization that had emerged in Paris. And this is where, <laughs> bear with me, we will find it at the end of it, we will all get there. Because what was happening in Germany was actually in Polish territories under German control wasn't the full picture. There were other emissaries, other Poles, who did their best to uh, uh, publicize Poland's case and to attract attention to the plight of Poland, hoping that Poland would be restored after the war. So Piłsudski, by the very fact that he's in Warsaw and he's able to command the authority of the troops, he has the support of the assembly that he's put together, he is seen as a Polish patriot. There's absolutely no debate about his authority. But as I say, he's able, therefore, not to just play the field at home, but he also thinks what is happening in Paris. Um, now, this is the map of Poland after all the major revisions. <coughs> we'll try to work this one out. You can see that technology is not the strongest of my points. Now, what we have is, um, let's start off with Poland is restored in this boundary. So this is actually the boundary that Poland secures. Okay? Now, what is interesting is this border. This border, this dotted one, was the border that was put to the Paris peace talks. It's well beyond the ethnic, the areas inhabited by ethnic Poles. Areas inhabited by ethnic Poles are these areas. This is but now all these territories that are incorporated, in particular the eastern areas, are acquired through a process of multiple military campaigns led by Piłsudski. So whatever's happening in Paris, it is he that concentrated on making sure that while the Russian Revolution uh, weakened the empire's control during the Civil War period in Russia, he's actually claiming for Poland territory, physically claiming for Poland territory. Um, now, what, what seems to be the guiding light is that the incorporation in Poland of territories which has been previously part of the Commonwealth. Um, uh, the ultimate objective was, as far as Piłsudski was concerned, a federated state, a state in which other national groups would be incorporated in Poland. Not that anybody asked those people, but that seems to be a good enough plan as a starter. Um, and of course, the Polish army is brought into action and is, is deployed on several fronts. And indeed, one wonders whether skirmishes or maneuvers or perhaps war would not be a more appropriate phrase to describe what actually happens in these eastern regions. Um, now, uh, as far as Piłsudski was concerned, he had absolutely no time for the whites. He was not going to support the white generals against the Bolsheviks, because, of course, none of the white generals were willing to make any commitment to the restoration of Poland and merely returned back to this idea of the restoration of Russia in its Tsarist uh, uh, borders. So there is no dialogue between Piłsudski and the whites, though there might have been because of both uh, sides seeking to destroy the Bolsheviks 
um, but there is just simply that platform is not developed. Instead, what happens is that Piłsudski does occasionally, and the Polish commanders do occasionally enter into opportunistic arrangements with the Ukrainian community. In other words, the Ukrainian uh, community is deeply divided, and the Poles most certainly seek uh, territories in, in particular in particular these territories which are, uh, are contested and in fact we, what we see is the emergence of uh, several Ukrainian administrations. So the, the Poles um, collaborated with Petrula in 1920. They went to the, as far as Kiev, um, here we've got Kiev, so the, the furthest that Polish troops went was in a sort of very complex line including Kiev and going down here. And this was considered Piłsudski, one of Piłsudski's biggest mistakes, that actually opportunistically he thought he was going to extend Polish borders you know, as far as Kiev. But it is something that, well, he's defeated. The Bolsheviks pushed the Poles back. The Ukrainians also were not happy to have Poles supposedly taking up their cause. And the Ukrainian community, I said, is divided. But um, ultimately what the Poles wanted was Eastern Galicia. Um, now, then, of course, the, the battles with, uh, on the borderlands brought the, the, the Polish units in conflict with the Red Army, simply because once the whites are defeated in 1920, we have actually an awareness that the Red Army is a threat. Well, they have the same aspirations to that region. In other words, there genuinely is a conflict there. Um, and, of course, the Red Army pushed into Poland and went as far as, uh, Vil uh, as, far as Warsaw. Um, I was surprised how far they went, because, in fact, the, the, the Red Army went more or less down this type of a curve. So Poland was, was probably, you know, so it was a very successful push. And, of course, the defense of Warsaw, again, is something that Piłsudski takes on as a sort of symbol of defense of Poland and successfully pushes, or it's debated also whether the Russians did not out run their own supplies. In other words, the Russian, uh, this, uh, the, the Red Army push into Europe is stalled at that point and in fact is reversed. Um, the Poles disregard for the aspirations of other people in a genuine conflict with the people uh, in that region, it particularly manifests itself over this uh, region and the town of Vilno. Because town, the town of Vilna, as we can see, it has got you know Polish population uh, there in a majority, um, but nevertheless, you know the Lithuanians see it as a, their own ancient capital, and they would like to see uh, it incorporated into the, the newly emerging Lithuanian state. Now, the Poles and the Lithuanians collaborated in the defeat of the Soviet army, but ultimately, as a result of that one, it seems that the Poles agreed to withdraw, and then, in fact, by a staged coup, a pretend coup, in fact, the Polish um, army takes over that region. So, um, by 1923, the, the region of Vilno is incorporated, uh, here you can see, is incorporated into the Polish state, and the Lithuanians never forgave the Poles for doing so. It seemed to have been such a duplicitous thing to do. But there were various other conflicts over the borders. There were conflicts over with Czechoslovakia, which we have here, which is the coal mining district. And of course, there is the Poznań area. You can see here mixed population. And of course, here, which is Poland is granted access to the sea, but undisputably, this is not 
a majority German population. So the Poles were in fact during all of this period, 1918, 1920, we have skirmishes between German and Polish communities, which militarized, or shall we say, armed communities were fighting it out. And in fact, the Polish government was supporting the Polish community, hoping to create a fait accompli. On the Western border, it was made more difficult for the Poles because, of course, the Western powers had an interest in what was going to happen in, in, in relation to Germany, whereas the East, there was a lot of ambivalence, both in London and Paris, as to what exactly is the long-term policy. Now, my final point is world opinion. Does world opinion matter in all of this? So what I've created for you, I hope, is a picture of a dynamic stage of development in which there is little attention paid to the wishes of the big powers. Because the Poles are doing their own job here. They are establishing their own authority. They are gathering their forces. They are moving troops to the east. The campaigns are being fought there. Militarization of the Polish community and attempts are made to create a fait accompli. Does it matter what Britain, France, the US thinks? Well, in principle, no. But on the other hand, there is this whole context. In other words, it w is important to obtain the approval of the big powers. Um, Poland, both in terms of this being the imprimatur, the statement that Poland is now an independent state, it's important to have the approval. It's important to go to Paris and have your delegation present your case, argue the case, and have the approval, not just for the <coughs> restoration of Poland, which is a foregone conclusion, but for the borders. It also matters because in this scheme of the development of Poland, Poland thought of, of the new state as being a modern state. They did not want Poland to be an agrarian backward state. They anticipated Western finance, Western support, know-how, trade with France. There's a, a, a bitter sense of disappointment that the French did not commit themselves more extensively than they did. The French, in fact, did to some extent, because we've got the Polish, the Polish military academy is established by the French. The French, uh, in fact, were very concerned about uh, uh, what is happening when you know, the Red Army came close to Warsaw. And de Gaulle's experience of <coughs> Poland was, in fact, because he was a liaison officer there. I'm not saying that uh, de Gaulle is the sum total of the German army, but I'm merely of the French army, but I'm merely suggesting that there is an interest. But to the Poles, it was never enough. It, they actually hoped that they would become part of Western Europe. The concept of Western Europe, the concept of being part of the, cons you know, the, the unity of West European states. And therefore, in that picture, the approval of the big powers is of relevance. It actually does matter what happens. And of course, throughout the war, we had famous and infamous Poles traveling throughout, wherever it was possible, because in wartime <coughs> circumstances, that's not necessarily easy, trying to facilitate, trying to raise the issue. And these people, Paderewski is a perfect example of that one, but we also have Gnowski out there. In other words, people who are lobbying governments and making sure, even before that reality of the creation of Poland is possible, making sure that the concept, the idea, the image of an independent Poland is firmly fixed in the minds of um, the 
uh, Western diplomats. Now another smart Polish guy. Um, this man is much more complex. I called him, I described him as a dark person. He was by two, this is Roman Dmowski, in case you're wondering who this is. Um, he's, uh, he was by training a biologist. Um, his ideas on nationality and nations is very sort of pseudo-Darwinist, that nations are in conflict. And nations will, he develops that well before the First World War. He's the leader of the National Democratic Movement, very much the key ideologue of the nationalist movement in Poland. Um, his ideas, uh, essentially that nations are at conflict with each other. And Poland is weakened by the fact that it doesn't have a state. So as a nation it's exposed. It has to think carefully of its future. And what he feels is that the largest threat to the Polish nation, and he sees it as an organism, not as just a, you know, a sum total of culture and people, but as an organism, um, is, it comes from Germany. The Germans are the largest threat, and therefore you have to carefully evaluate your uh, allies. As far as he's concerned, Russia is a potential ally. This is not necessarily a very positive example, but it could be uh, the best deal. But it is his racial ideas that go well beyond merely defining uh, 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 Germans and Russian. It is his pronouncement on the Jewish people that are most uh, 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 striking. What he sees is the Jewish people as being a virus, <coughs> a, a, a dangerous body uh, that will creep into the body, destroy from the inside. It's uh, uneasily similar to, of course, Hitler's views, because even before Hitler's views were, were, were put forward. So what we have is this pseudo-Darwinist idea that the presence of the Jewish community in uh, Polish territories or within the Polish nation is dangerous. It's regressive, in fact has to be in some way prevented. In other words, Poles have to be expelled, removed. And that he did not necessarily this, this, uh, f uh, put forward ideas that other parties might have disagreed with. Other parties also displayed anti-Semitic ideas. But only Dmowski and his National Democratic Party put it so openly. In other words, that the Poles had no place in, U in, in Poland. Now, Dmowski's ideas were well publicized. He made that quite sure of it. This is nothing secret about it. And he himself was a deputy from the Polish territories to the Duma. During the war, he, in fact, stays in St. Petersburg, hoping to drum up support. Now, Russian support for Polish, the Polish cause during the war is equivocal. You know, don't see the point of making any commitments. And then they lose Polish territories anyway. Dmowski by 1915 has got doubts about it, so he finally leaves, he, goes to, uh, uh, he comes to Europe, quite a torturous journey, as you can imagine, and he's based in Paris, travels to London, and he's lobbying, he lobbied the Foreign Office. The Foreign Office initially found his ideas interesting, but anti-Semitism of that raw, vicious type was something that the Foreign Office did not like, and therefore there was a sort of removing themselves. It was also the aspiration. I already pointed out to you in the previous map, Dmowski's ideas meant that he imagined Poland to extend extensively to the east. The idea was that these Slav people out there were really, they, they were just, you know, l Poles lost to the nation. Just, you know, give them a little bit more of Polishness and they'll come back to us type of thing. So then he rejected the idea that there was genuinely such a thing as Belarusian or Ukrainian 
nationalism, you know, just we can cope with that one type of thing. Of course, this type of thinking, you know, caused many politicians to, you know, gave them a sense of revulsion. And of course, these ideas are also picked up in the US. And in the US, uh, these ideas, the Jewish uh, community did they uh, utmost to try to counteract it by drawing attention to what would be the consequences were such a people to rule Poland. Um, but it is Dmowski, and together with him, Ignacy Paderewski, who, in fact, a pianist, as I think Professor Stevenson presented him rather well, I can't add to that one, that had created already that in, in Western Europe, and then uh, Paderewski traveled to, um, uh, to the US and toured the US campaigning for Poland, um, that created that image that there were two politicians who have Poland's interest at heart. So if you could keep Piłsudski out of your mind now, and we in Paris at the end of the war, it seems like there is a group of engaged Poles, Poles who are not just assuring the diplomats that they will be able to put a government together, dominated as it is, seems to be by Moscow's group, but also a, a group of Poles that will raise a Polish army. The Polish army was going to be raised uh, from troops in the <coughs> east, then transported over to France. I'm always thinking of the distances here. I don't know how this plan could have taken off. And there were also troops raised from Poles in France. So the idea was to give the French, even at the time when the French had terribly pushed for troops, a possibility of actually uh, 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 using Polish units. The French were willing to listen to that one. In any case, in the Kedolse, and within the French high command, there are various ideas what to do, in particular after the, develop, after the uh, Russian Revolution and the Civil War. In other words, upon what basis is French future policy going to be developed? So the French are listening to Dmowski. They're trying to work out. So the committee that is established in Paris by Dmowski and his team a, a, a calling itself the Polish National Committee, is in fact granted recognition, first by the French in September 1917, then the British in October, and then the US. So the National Committee in Paris appears to have scored a major diplomatic victory. It is seen as a future government, and therefore they, as it stole a march on what was happening in Poland, which was at that particular point not very much. <coughs> So what we have is that, of course, when Piłsudski, if I'm bringing these two things together, so what we have is, as German authority collapsed in Poland, Piłsudski is focusing on developing uh, you know, the concept of Polish borders. In, he had in Paris the danger, which is Dmowski and his Polish National Committee. Um, Piłsudski did not succeed in persuading the French to sideline in fact, Moscow's team appeared to be one that the French wanted to keep there, and therefore, uh, with B British assistance, finally uh, some compromise is put together. And that brings a third player into the picture, a player that is most probably the nicest of the three. Um, uh, this is, again, fantastic romantic imagery. He, his sale point was not just his playing, but his romantic aura of a Polish patriot. Something, something that he played very well. He, his main repertoire was Chopin, Liszt, uh, you know, 
heavy patriotic uh, sort of Polish romanticism, other than this, which is Hungarian. But this, uh, he, his whole behavior was deeply romantic, uh, you know, passionate. And uh, he was adored by female audiences, and apparently he didn't play too badly either. But um, so he, he, he steps into the role of um, a, not just of a piano player who is Polish, but into the role of a Polish piano player, one that the audiences seem to have liked, and he makes use of it. He's of a background of, of lesser nobility um, from the eastern sex areas. Family, his family had been affected by the uprising, so he's brought up in very much in the romantic tradition and tradition of suffering um, that followed the uprisings. He left Poland. Um, Nevertheless, he always felt himself to be Polish, and therefore he uses his musical success, his professional success, to further Poland's cause. So as the war broke out, he was in, this, in Switzerland, he participated in the creation of a relief fund, and then he takes himself off to the US, where he, throughout the war, campaigned extensively, <coughs> raised great amount of money. He was a man who had a, a strong sense of commitment to charity, extremely generous, um, created various uh, charitable uh, uh, foundations from which Polish people benefited, but also others. In other words, he was very generous with very, uh, uh, I, I saw actually programs uh, where he donated the full uh, uh, proceeds of a concert to musicians' benevolent funds or musicians' uh, 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 support funds. So in other words, he, he was um, epitomized this sort of um, the nice pole image, you know, everything positive about him, but he uses that to campaign for the Polish case. He used also his social connections, because unlike Dmowski, who really causes a lot of the politicians of the time a degree of unease, Dmowski is educated, but there's something about him that makes politicians feel that you are going to be drawn into politics that none of them feel they approve of. Um, Piłsudski entirely plays his game in Poland. Now, Paderewski is well socially connected. He's invited to the best of salons, both in Britain and in America and in Europe. He uses these connections to put the Polish cause. He actually came back from America as the war came to an end, and the British assisted him in going to Poland. There, that is that <coughs> reconciliation between Piłsudski and Paderewski, who still represented that French connection. He's appointed as Prime Minister and Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was a baby, totally innocent of reality of politics. He actually commissioned supplies in America for his own money. He, he thought of the treasury like you do of your personal bank account. You know, so you buy something and pay for it with your personal money. He was not actually a good politician. He was just an extremely decent human being. But he was socially extremely well connected. So when the Paris peace talks opened, the two delegates from Poland is Paderewski and Dmowski. Dmowski because he represented the committee in Paris. Paderewski comes back from Poland. How much of an input did they have? I mean, what did they have to offer? Well, this brings me back to this question of how did the Western, the, the world powers view the Polish case? Well, they viewed it very much from the perspective of their own interests, and what they wanted was stability in Europe. 
And Poland didn't seem to promise stability, because while Dmowski and, uh, first Dmowski, and then he's replaced by Padelewski, who came and swept him aside and, you know, socialized and hobnobbed and went to Suarez and believed that everything could be arranged like that rather than presentations, Dmowski delivered a presentation of five hours, no notes, um, and apparently incredible command of maps, um, which, of course, just ended up with everybody thinking he was too clever rather than people appreciating him. So when Paderewski and Dmowski are discussing these issues, the Western powers always, in particular Britain, France, and the US, viewed it from the perspective of stability and their policy towards Germany. As you can imagine, what Dmowski wanted, that wider Polish borders appeared to be very worrying, a source of potential difficulties. What uh, 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 Paderewski wanted was actually something different, which is West, the, the big powers working with Poland, which they weren't going to do either, because in the end they were following their own interests. And therefore the British and the French debate, discuss, try to find out, <coughs> disapprove. But one thing they were aware of, they had no control over what was happening in Poland. There was very little, uh, efforts were made to try to rein in Piłsudski, to tell him not to go into Galicia, to stop activities, uh, in particular, you know, extending, uh, 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 pushing the Polish units towards um, Kiev. In fact, the two Polish delegates had to admit they had no more control over Piłsudski than anybody else had. In other words, everybody was aware that Piłsudski was pushing for the creation of borders without reference to either the delegates in Paris or, in fact, to the Paris. So there is a very uneasy relationship there where the Western powers finally manage to negotiate part of the reasons with the Poles because of military defeats rather than because Piłsudski was going to listen to anybody. Um, the end result of as far as uh, uh, these men are concerned, Piłsudski, of course, remains in Poland and a few years later stages a coup d'etat. He's the leader of a coup d'etat which is staged in order to replace corrupt politics once more with a man who, as if a prophetic leader of the nation. Dmowski was never the same man. I describe him as a marathon runner who comes to the finishing line. He, as if, gave everything he could have to negotiate, to fight for Poland. And the National Democratic Party is the key party in Polish politics during the interwar period, but he's never allowed to form a government. The other parties always blocked their way. Paderewski hated what happened later. He felt that he had signed the, the, the Versailles Peace Treaty. He felt that um, they, he had been outwitted by the big powers. He felt not appreciated by the Poles. He lost immense amounts of money and funds, which he had simply tipped into the uh, treasury. He left, and as far as he was concerned, it's very interesting. In, in the interviews that he uh, uh, were conducted by uh, an American academic, which then formed the basis of a sort of biography, he, there is absolutely nothing he has to say about the period, at, uh, either during the war or during the Paris peace talks. Absolutely nothing. It, it, it scorched him. He was so deeply hurt. Now, the final bit I want to just throw a few ideas. Now, the way Poland emerges, when the, 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 the traumas that we see are the inevitable process of the creation of the new state. What is the impact of these traumas? Is it that the Poles, having established now authority, having established a government, having now uh, obtained some form of disapproval, 
There are still contested issues over Silesia, over uh, 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 Transos. Uh, so later on, they still have been discussed within the Council of Ambassadors. But the basic outline of Polish borders are there. How do they feel contented? Do they feel that they have achieved, that at last, freedom at last? Well, no, they didn't. Because what we have is that the, 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 the process of creating Poland is accompanied by aggression, by self-preoccupation, <coughs> by an unwillingness to uh, consider the interests of other national groups. Not that the other national groups behaved any di different. What I'm saying is, from the per Polish perspective, it was a fight, a fight for survival. It hardened the political life and consolidated it firmly behind the concept that nationalism is supreme and national interests should overrule others. So the democratic system that emerges is in fact hampered by this constant push and pull of the demand to submit all uh, state functions to the defense of the interests of the nation. It's not just the question of Poland being now independent, the creation of state structures which will represent the interests of all citizens. 69% of Polish citizens declared themselves Polish, which leaves us, of course, with the remaining saying they are not Polish. In other words, Poland emerges from the collapse of multi-ethnic empires only to create a Poland which is multi-ethnic, a Polish state which is multi-ethnic. And the worrying thing is that within their own borders, they have national minorities whose independence they have thwarted. It's not going to be a comfortable relationship, and it's one in which the Polish state is committed to the defense of Polish interests and not to the interests of the state. So that principle of modernity, the principle of representation, is as if lessened in comparison to the interest of the people. So what I could say is that at the end of the war, the baby is safely delivered. But the baby is traumatized by the birth processes, and that the new state's political development and economic development were affected henceforth by the trauma of that birth. Thank you. strongly was the stress you were putting on what was happening on the ground, really. The Paris Peace Conference was ratifying or failing to ratify a process that was really where the initiative was being taken by Pilsudski and the people working for him were under his command. And um, background to it really was the collapse of Austria-Hungary and Germany. It was that situation which created the power vacuum which, which he and his followers could, could move into. Yeah. Um, I mean, could you say more about Pilsudski and how he relates to what you were describing at the beginning, which was the kind of intellectual trends before 1914 that were leading to the uh, emergence of Poland? Is he, should we see him basically as, as, as a strong man, or is he, is he an intellectual figure? 
Oh no, he, well, he I mean, he, the curious thing is he comes from a socialist party, but yes. he, belonged and he belonged to the socialist party, and when the socialist party in, in Poland, or the socialist movement in Poland, because it's not yet a united party because of the three partition area, is tearing itself aside, debates about uh, the issue of supremacy of the quest for independence as opposed to revolution. Piłsudski is uh, very much in the section uh, which is called the revolutionary faction, which uh, takes a view that uh, the, the, in the first place you establish independence and, and uh, socialism will be the next point, which distinguishes it from uh, another faction which takes a much more radical view, the sort of Luxembourgist line later. But um, Piłsudski never, s I mean, uh, he sort of is involved with a number of public pronouncements or party pronouncements and everything, but then he's connected with a section of the party which um, was in fact a, a sort of military section of the wing and then m moves to Krakow uh, uh, from the Russian section to Krakow which was a sort of haven within the Austrian or it, it, autonomous area within the Austrian area um, and there he started thinking before the war around about 1910 of establishing military units so his idea moved in the direction of actually Poland, uh, the, the Polish community having military power now, subsequently, so he, he sort of, uh, Austrians allowed for the creation of uh, a rifleman's units, sort of a, a paramilitary organization, which subsequently <laughs> then uh, he hopes will, as the war breaks out, to become regular units. So there is this whole process of moving towards military action, you know, and, and subsequently the legend that is created is that of man of action. He, 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 sort of, you know, you know, like sometimes you meet an old uncle who just goes on and on and on, and you sort of wonder whether he ever was any different. Uh, the legend of Piłsudski that, that the created, that is created subsequently, is very different, most probably, from the reality. But the legend that is created after the war, and he consciously works on it, is that blunt patriot military man of action, none of your finest stuff, you know, speaking in enigmatic and vulgar military vocabulary, um, you know, so he had contempt for politicians. He, he was pretty astute, but it was that persona that he's cultivating. So the, the, I wouldn't say that he enters into finer discussions, though he, before the war, most certainly. Sounds like Michael Collins and the Fenians, if you're thinking of sort of our mm -hmm. Irish parallels at the time. Anyway, I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. So, uh, I think this gentleman here, and then in the second row. Yeah. Thank you. Um, <coughs> um, less than a couple of decades after the events you mentioned, there was the Nazi-Soviet pact, and my question is: Was there ever any chance that perhaps there could have been a, a better relationship between the Poles, the Lithuanians, the Belarusians, and the Ukrainians, bearing in mind the potential threat? I mean, Germany and Russia were just temporarily weakened in the early 1920s. And I just wonder whether there was any possibility that it could have perhaps given themselves a degree more protection, given that is the prevailing attitude, not to mention ideology, mm -hmm. in Germany and in Russia. No, there never was. Absolutely no. One, because after the occupation of Vilno, what the Poles did is withdraw from Vilno, and then a man called General Zeligowski goes in with his units and sort of supposedly takes over. You know, Fiume is a similar case, takes over, and then um, effectively there are elections, government, the government, the local government then requesting cooperation into Lithuania. Of course, the Lithuanians. Well, this was, you know, absolute insult to them as far as they were concerned. Poland grabbed that territory. And 
there were diplomatic relations between Poland and Lithuania were blighted right until 1938, where this is the only case in history that I can think of where a country has really established diplomatic relations by a process of presentation of an ultimatum. Um, uh, during the Czech crisis, the Poles presented an ultimatum to the German, uh, to the Lithuanians, and said we establish diplomatic relations or else. The problem is, I don't know what was there or else, um, and uh, th th this wasn't going to work. But with the Ukrainian and Belarusian community, it was even worse, because of course these communities, those who are incorporated in Polish territory, are treated very badly. Land reform, which was the big objective in Poland, the idea was, you know, to, to break up bigger states. Um, was approved immediately by the first government, but um, it, it sort of was, you know, rather qualified in terms of how it was going to work. But it was robustly implemented in the eastern regions where there were non-Polish landowners. And what they did is land was distributed among Poles. So they were trying to create military settlements. Ex-combatants would be granted land in the Ukrainian territories, but not Ukrainians who didn't have the right to land. So there was these military settlements reinforcing Polish presence in the areas I described. Then, of course, there is a, you know, serious conflicts with the Ukrainian community in 1929-30. Uh, there is actually military pacification of these territories. So the Polish government, as I said, driven by this sort of sense of needing to protect itself, first you upset people and then you protect yourself against them. It sounds like a veil system, you know, anybody who upsets us because we upset them is going to be, you know. Um, so what you have is actually um, very serious military confrontations in these regions. So even the idea that they, what they have in common, which is fear of Bolshevism, is not going to make an impact. I mean, it's interesting that in the Kiev district, when the Russians came in, they approved land reform. When they were pushed out, the Poles reversed it and restored the owners. The Ukrainians loathed the Poles, absolutely loathed them. There was nothing that the Poles had to offer the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians then are, of course, infiltrated by the Nazi or the German policy, and as far as they're <coughs> concerned, um, they collaborating with the natural friend against the enemy. <coughs> I just was um, perhaps a slightly too broad question, but uh, you, you can say a bit more about uh, the way nationalism changes in Poland. And you talk first about it being predominantly an aristocratic thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how far there was a sense of national consciousness within Poland um, in earlier periods. And then you talk about sort of the turn of the century. You have an emergence of a more popular style of nationalism, but a much more exclusive, aggressive style of nationalism. Well, certainly wasn't unique Poland more exclusive and how that emerges. Um, well, I, I, I sort of spanned, you know, yeah. the, the uprisings as a starting point of my issue about uh, the, the nobility being, the criticism of the nobility, and then the, the post-war period. But in between, you actually do have the development of Polish culture, Polish schooling, Polish universities. Um, so it's not all aggressive. You know, there is a proper cultural expression. Uh, both in musical terms and representation, linguistic terms. But the interesting thing about Polish nationalism is that you don't have a Polish state, but you have a Polish language and a concept um, of Polish cultural unity, though the three partition areas behaved very differently towards Poland. So I find that is interesting, that it seems to transcend these boundaries. Of course, when Poland emerges as an independent, an independent state, they need to codify uh, grammar and uh, you know, uh, school books and everything simply to find the common 
language as if. So there is in between a, a, you know, a lot to be spoken of, and Polish culture go, goes through a number of stages. But there's always that ingredient of nationalism, and there's always the returning to the question of the validity of what you're doing to the national issue. And there is a period when, you know, certain authors, the positive period, positivist period, where they just get weary of that one. Um, there's one or two female authors who, who really get away from all this talk about, you know, another uprising and everything, this sort of organic cooperation. So we really see quite a lot happening there and development <coughs> over time. So there's a question here. Yeah, you, you answered yeah. some of it, actually. Yeah. wouldn't be able to confidently answer your question because I don't know in terms of you know actually how it plays itself out in those very reforms and this thing of actually um, educational system which would even it out. Unifies people yeah. One banner. Yes. All you said is lots of lots of groups all over the show. I mean it's an absolute tangle. No wonder they have such struggles. But if you can't unify under a banner, you can't use nationalism in itself, can you? No, I, I think the core of Polish identity is there. It's not as if it's sort of creating <coughs> that identity. There, there is a p Polish language, there is Polish yeah, tradition. No, but the, the, the ethnic groups within yeah. Poland yes. haven't got an identity yes. all of a sudden. And the Polish nation trying to create a nationality that they can join. Well, that doesn't go away. That continues a problem right until the end of the war because it is it happens, in, for example, in Silesia and in, in uh, the... Uh, territories that were incorporated around uh, Prussia, uh, from some territories from Eastern Prussia and some from Western Prussia that were incorporated in Poland, where these people did not feel themselves, as you say. Now, the German community fought back, and it had, in fact, the right by the minorities treaty signed at the, uh, uh, at the Paris peace talks. The, they had the right to their own schooling. Um, but uh, the difficulty was not where there was a clear statement of identity, that they were Germans, they felt Germans, but where like the Kasubians or the Silesians who, who didn't fit into either. And the, the, on the whole, the attitude of the Polish state to them, both during the interwar period but also during the communists, was very common to, to simply say that they had lost themselves and to, to, to dismiss, they claim, to, you know, a, an identity other than either or. So it was a question of the Jewish element. Absolutely. Transcended all borders. Yes. And, and they didn't seem to take up an identity which put fear in people because the Russian Jew was equal to the Polish Jew, equal to the German Jew. And, and that, that gives fear. People don't like people who have got no uh, loyalty or apparent loyalty. It's not there. Look, apparent loyalty because there was no sign of disloyalty on no. the part of the Jewish community. But there was a perception that they, for religious terms, and uh, because they didn't sort of fall into a stereotype that they could become enemies. Yeah, but a lot of the Polish, the, 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 not the Poland per se, but mm. a lot of the problems with the Jewish issues in Central Europe was that before that period, of course, the only nation that 
transcended during the Polonic period from Austro-Hungarians and Prussians to Russian Jewish people. Yes. And the Jewish people could communicate across borders and had interaction within countries that nobody else had. And they were the spy system. They understood more of what was going on. And that was fear of God into everybody because they had no control over it. I would agree with you up to a point on this. Jews are nice people, but they're not. I can see some, some other hands, hands going up, so there'll probably be a chance to carry this on afterwards. It's a very interesting identity questions are being raised. I think you were, you were first, and then here. Yeah. Uh, because there was less of an opportunity because there in fact the borders are fairly closely more closely defined historically but most certainly the Poznan region and also Silesia was, were areas that he wanted as well as the Polish delegation quite frankly incorporating Poland because the coal issue comes in there and larger sections of Western Prussia in fact was finally granted. But the, the thing about East is that with the co collapse of the Russian Empire and then the Civil War, it's seen as an area where there is a political vacuum which creates more of a dilemma than it does. And of course Dmowski, as well as uh, you know, Piłsudski's actions suggest that the Poles are, uh, uh, see that they will benefit from Western anxiety about Red Army's movement into Europe, and they are actually presenting themselves as a stabilizing force against the Bolsheviks, which of course was not the case, because they were just as capable of entering into discussions with the Bolsheviks when the need arose. Um, but what it is is that you are using that one to extend your borders where there is otherwise no clear authority established. Well, this is a question I think I shouldn't be asking a professor of history. But <clears throat> the Poland you presented here, do you think it was a stable Poland? Would it have, if there hadn't been a Second World War, would it have survived or would it have disintegrated through its own problems and so on? By the 1930s, you do see stability, economic stability. You can see that you know Polish institutions are functioning. But it would have been most probably a long time before it, uh, the political system would have as if uh, moved through the nationalist, extreme nationalism and racist policies into, shall we say, more this sort of concept of actually representing the citizens, um, which really is something that uh, in spite of assuming the French constitutional model, the government never operates. So I think there, there would be still a longer period of adjustment, but I think it showed signs of enduring. It, it didn't show signs of splintering or ceasing.
but bohemian as in yes exactly that's what I'm, you mean a sort of a radical cultural yeah okay thank you um, I, look I think there's always this if we're talking about the radical cultural yes in Poland like in all countries you have actually the emergence of, of very interesting new form of expression and of course the young artistic groups did look to Russia for example Mayakovsky visits Poland there is a sort of curiosity about you know new forms of expression so I don't think that the emergence of Poland necessarily stops from there being a variety of cultural developments but uh, some of them do suffer this question of you know new state creating a certain demands in national terms but there is no shortage of very uh, progressive and interesting cultural styles and, and uh, means of expression I think we have both we have those groups that focused on nationalism and those that actually uh, took a sort of um, well I was interested to see how some groups were actually defying the general perception that the Soviet, what is up, Soviet Union is an enemy and were impressed by cultural developments there, which already in Poland suggest bravery as well as independent thinking, as well as specific traditions that had been developed and continued from the past. We've got a couple more questions. Time for a couple more, three more questions. Can I collect three questions and give them to you? I think you, you were first, yeah. Or was your should I just collect them up and give each a chance to give a chair. back? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple of questions, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 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 how, how much did Zimotsky and actually talk during, during the negotiations um, or, or communicate in some way? And was there anyone to speak for the Belarusians? You had the fear for the Ukrainians. Was there anyone? At, at, the, at Paris? No, no, no. Any, anyone, I mean, Kuczynski spoke to Petlura and had yeah. various dealings with him. Was there yeah. anyone on the Belarusian side? I don't think militarily they collaborated with the Belarusians. The Petrula one was a fairly unusual thing. Um, but uh, Moski and Piłsudski didn't communicate because Moski didn't come to Poland. <coughs> Moski stayed in Paris. And what happened is that um, Piłsudski sent his delegation to Paris. The French said that's not going to work. So then the delegation has to start talking and of course they communicated by radio I think um, so they, they, they loathed each other they absolutely didn't want to have anything to do with each other and finally Moski is told you know the delegation is expanded so there are two main delegates but there is a team and the teams apparently work in separate sections of the buildings um, so it was really Dmoski leading with Piłsudski effectively saying, if that's your attitude, I'm getting on with it. And when Dmoski goes back, Piłsudski makes absolutely certain that um, he, he just doesn't have any chance of you know, uh, getting any recognition for what Dmoski did at Paris. Um, even his funeral, apparently, it was, was, you know, his body was not laid out in the cathedral, which would have been appropriate. So there is the, the whole of the military regime later make sure that Moscow's reputation is, is, is sort of low. Yes. Okay, there's a question here and then here. And then I, I think we ought to... Yes. Sorry, I'm really interested. More of a comment. I mean, there was a point being made about a, a new Polish language by the gentleman over there. But I don't think there was any question of a new Polish language. Because... Uh, you know, the Polish language has been more or less established since 
the Renaissance and the great authorities in the language were writing uh, were the Romantic poets. You know, they were regarded as the, the, the peak achievement. So there was nothing to reject in that faith. There wasn't. It wasn't like the Norwegians who had to cobble together a new language. It, it wasn't like that. And as far as um, um, you know, nationalist uh, nationalism being opposed, isn't the, was it Kazimierz Bierzyński who said, um, "And when I, when spring comes, may I see spring and not Poland." <laughs> no, but I like it. <laughs> so there were sort of reactions against that. It, it, it can't be asserted that everybody was, you know, extremely nationalistic. No, no, I don't think the, I don't think any of us would have said that one. But what we're saying, what I was saying, is the political life is tainted very strongly by that 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 prioritizing of, of nationalist quest, um, which you know in in other <coughs> countries, let's say, which had already established them and had stability, political stability, that is not so much of a of a driving force. My question to you is on sort of a rather broader scale because you hardly touched the subject of the Polish-Soviet war. Yes. Uh, and uh, my Just first question yeah. is why didn't you mention? I didn't mention it, but well, you mentioned that it yeah. happened. So you yeah. only left it at that. Yeah. But without the Poles winning the war, there would be no Poland <coughs> uh, at the time. Uh, also, the questions which are coming from the floor partly it relates to that because what happened to Poland in 1939 was 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 related to the Polish-Soviet war because Poland defeated the Russians and and, and the, the Stalin ne never forgiven the Poles and the cutting was the result of that. So because this is such a significant part of the new Poland at the time, why did you omit it completely? I, what I was trying to, I mean I did look at the issue of the Soviet uh, war, but uh, what I was trying to do is find the skirmishes that define the border. And I did make the mention the fact that the Poles do actually come in confrontation with the, or the, there is the inevitability of yeah, the but conflict. On one hand, you, you mentioned Kiev, the, the, mm -hmm. the yeah. episode, which wasn't territorial, it was purely political, to establish the alliance with Pekura, which, which you know, Piłsudski was fighting the Pekura to start with, then sort of came to the alliance. Mm -hmm. And the whole purpose was to establish the Ukrainian, give Pekura time to, to, to form the government and the army, which, which he failed. So, so there was nothing else for Piłsudski mm -hmm. to do, so that they retreat. So that was slightly... Well, I'm, I'm not so certain that they retreat, because in fact the Poles... Uh, I mean, look, we, you, your question is not really about Kiev, your question is about... No, yes, okay, <laughs> fine, but it's, it relates to that, because you, know, one, you, you just can't mention Kiev without you know, bringing the other aspects to it. I, the, the, all the, the whole political yeah. purpose was to form the alliance with, with uh, yes. Lithuanians and the Ukrainians, because Piłsudski rightly assumed that Poland on its own won't be able to sustain militarily. And that was the whole concept of the new religion, which is communism. Oh, look, again, you've completely you know, left it out. The <laughs> I, I, as, look, I, I, I did not leave it out. What I did is I tried to create a picture in which one battle was not, because I see it, I, I was trying to present that there are certain, skim, certain particular conflicts, and each one of them is played out together, but mm -hmm. also individually. 
Um, I don't think that the, the Polish-Soviet conflict is irrelevant, but it's merely my, uh, most probably you see that I didn't give it enough attention, and uh, that might be the case. But you know, with, as far as I'm concerned, I gave it enough attention to table its importance, even if not analyze it in detail. I think there's, there's a good deal about it in the book. Um, and uh, do, do read, this is another reason for reading the book. <laughs> uh, remember, remember that part of the reason why we're here, of course, is, is to congratulate Anita on, uh, on, on the appearance of the book. Yes. Can, can, do you want to say a word about the availability of the books, Barbara? Yeah. yeah. I don't think that's it.